HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Sweetgrass Dairy, a second-generation, family-owned creamery. Visit SweetgrassDairy.com to learn more. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome chef and restaurateur Nina Compton. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Nina about recovery in New Orleans, cooking Caribbean-inspired food, in Creole country. And we'll hear Nina's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the first episode of our 12th season. And as always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Lately, I'm thinking a lot about television. I've just returned from a stint in Los Angeles helping to produce a new Julia-themed cooking competition for Food Network and Discovery+. Plus. More on that when it's set to debut, but I think Julia fans will love it. The show's segments help tell Julia's life story and demonstrate the role television played in shaping Julia's career. When it was published, Mastering the Art of French Cooking was well-received in America's nascent food world. However, Julia was hardly a household name before she went on TV. Television as a national medium has a unique power to rocket people to fame by projecting those with charisma and something new to say right into our living rooms. For all Julia's awards, accomplishments, and writing talent, television offered the strongest platform to be influential. Now, the attention being on TV generates can be overwhelming and easily squandered, but for Julia, it was something she was ready to leverage. Someone else whose life was also transformed by television is Chef Nina Compton. 
Nina was a finalist and fan favorite on season 11 of Bravo's Top Chef New Orleans. At the time, she wasn't a local and had intended to take her training from the Culinary Institute of America in tough, male-dominated kitchens like Danielle in New York and success as a Miami-based chef and return home to her native St. Lucia. But opportunity knocked and she was offered the chance to open her own restaurant in New Orleans, moving from her post as chef de cuisine at Scarpetta in Miami after stints with Norman Van Aken and Felipe Ruiz. Nina's Compère Le Pain opened in a hotel in New Orleans Warehouse District in 2015, and by 2017, Eater named it one of the best restaurants in America, while Food & Wine magazine named Nina one of its best new chefs, even though she wasn't really a new chef. In, <laughs> in 2018, Nina won a James Beard Award for Best Chef in the South. And with her husband and business partner, Larry Miller, they opened a second, more casual, but equally praised New Orleans restaurant, Bywater American Bistro. Both restaurants serve food reflecting Nina's classical training, her Caribbean heritage, local Creole cuisine, and the Gulf of Mexico's bounty. Nina is also an active member of Les Dames de Scoffier International, an organization of women in food. Julia was a dedicated supporter, honored as one of their, I think it's Grand Dames rather than Grand Dames, but we can go with both. Nina served as a mentor in LDEI's Legacy Awards program, which provides opportunities for aspiring women in hospitality to learn firsthand from established female leaders. The foundation is proud to have helped fund the Legacy Awards over the last decade. Nina joins us today to share how New Orleans is recovering in the wake of the pandemic and now Hurricane Ida, and also share her views on where the post-pandemic world will take top restaurants. Welcome to the podcast, Nina. Thank you for having me. So I, I think we need to start with just how are things in New Orleans, particularly in the wake of the pandemic and in the wake of Ida? Well, it's been a, a long journey, you know, with the pandemic that hit last March. That really crippled the restaurant industry. As you know, New Orleans is known for their food and their beverage. And once the pandemic hit, a lot of those things, you know, really hindered the, the, the festiveness of the city. Um, and then now we just, you know, it's two weeks since the hurricane Ida has hit. And it's it's a pretty somber energy in the city. I think people are just trying to rebuild and wrap their heads around, you know, what has happened. Uh, luckily, the city was not as damaged as some of the areas in the South. Um, you know, and it's as a chef, that is very devastating to me to know that the farming and the fishing um, mm. uh, towns were demolished, they were flattened. Um, so we are in the process of helping those people get on, on track. And helping feed them. So we are providing meals every day um, that go down to them and help them, you know, feel better about themselves, you know, through food. So I wow. think that's what that's what everybody's trying to do now is just support each other in, in, you know, any way possible. I don't think there's anything that's too big or too small that goes unnoticed. And I think the great thing about the city is, you know, once the hurricane hit, everybody came out of their houses the day after and checked on their neighbors. And when you say we, in terms of uh, we are helping um, 
the farmers and suppliers and fishermen. Are you talking about you compare Le Pen and, and your bistro? Or are you talking about a sort of wider group that you participate in or both? The Both. It's the, the culinary community has really come forward to you know, shine some light on the people that are that lost everything. Um, you know, in the news, they're talking about Louisiana as a whole, but there's some areas that didn't really get the spotlight, and we're trying to just bring awareness of those people that really need the help. And the chefs community has really come forward. Melissa Martin of Mosquito Supper Club has raised in six days $300,000 that is giving those farmers and fishermen cash in their hands, which they need right now. Um, and she has become a very, you know, strong voice in terms of getting that that voice for those people that can't speak up right now because they're just trying to understand what really happened with the hurricane. And, you know, when you lose everything, it's a hard thing to deal with. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, 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 it makes perfect sense now that you say it, given the power of the storm and where it came through. But I, I think you're right, certainly widely, that has not been what you know. The story has sort of been New Orleans, New Orleans came out relatively unscathed, and the French Quarter right. is intact, and everyone's moving on. And you know, I had seen messages from you that you had electricity and hadn't lost water. But I, I guess, and, and I'd seen one story on one of the outlying islands that was really hit but I, but I hadn't processed the the impact on the larger you know food and beverage infrastructure that's critical to everyone's survival well I think a lot of people just think you know when we lost power we lost power um, pretty much for 11 to 12 days in the city um, and in the southern regions they're anticipating at least a month or at least five to six weeks they will get power back which is a very long time, you know, when we lost power for that first week, it was dreadful because it's, you know, it's summertime, it's a hundred degrees outside, your house is 120 degrees, you know, you don't have air conditioning, you don't have, uh, you know, ice, you don't have refrigeration, so you don't have those resources to keep, to keep uh, living comfortably. But I, I think what a lot of people are not, what is not actually in the press right now is how the food supply chain is it's completely broken you know the supply of fresh produce in the supermarkets um, and also for restaurants is is really bad it's very scarce so things that you take for granted like getting onions or carrots or avocados they're they're not available because those companies did not get deliveries the week before the storm and the week after the storm. So what they're distributing right now is from two weeks ago. And that's a limited supply because a lot of people did not want to get deliveries because we're going into such a major storm. Um, so it's pretty bare bones here, but I think a lot of people are understanding and we're just trying to make it work. Given what you just said, how, if, the supply chain is really broken and the supply chain was kind of, I think, already a mess given the pandemic. How are you able to even feed your your suppliers? I mean, it, it's really about just becoming creative. Um, and I, I think, you know, simple things that we know that are shell stable, that are, you know, things like rice, things like red beans um, and creating a yummy meal with that. Um, 
has, you know, found a way to be successful and nourishing for those people in, in need. Um, but I, I think that what the pandemic has taught us and also this hurricane is that we can't take things for granted. Um, and you're, you have to be very flexible and you have to constantly pivot, which is what everybody in the restaurant industry has done for the past 18 months is constantly thinking on your feet and just trying to get by each day um, successfully and also for the long-term haul, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, which sort of connects to this, how did you feel? Were things bouncing back before before the hurricane from COVID? I mean, certainly, you know, and obviously it's affected by the tourism and visitor boards and the right. promotion they're putting out. But the impression was, you know, people were coming back and the restaurants and hotels and bars were reopening and able to service customers. What's What's your view of how much things were bouncing back or how difficult it was? Compared to 2020, you know, we were on track for 2020 to have the, the best year ever um, because we had so many things booked um, and it was really looking very promising. And then once the pandemic hit, things just started to drop off the calendar very quickly. But once vaccines um, were rolling out, People were feeling more comfortable to come out. People were feeling they were able to travel safely. So the city was booming. Um, and it was actually pretty much around the one-year marker of March when the city exploded. We were busy. Um, people were very festive. People were in, in great moods because they were able to travel and you know dine out safely. So things were really on the up. Um, before the hurricane hits. And also with the with the Delta surge, I think that also kind of put people back in their shells a little bit because um, you know it's it's it, this is all new to everybody. Um, this is a different society that we live in right now where we are given information that is all new to us. Um, and I, I know that the scientists are trying to release information that they know that is trustworthy um, and is honest, um, and I think that's a very tough job to do because th this, this, you know, when the variant came out, nobody was expecting that. So, for the scientists, they're constantly trying to work with all these new strains and and get people out safely um, has been a challenge for them. Yeah, no, I mean, what you don't know and what is unknown is still a lot, and they're doing the best they can, but it's unfortunately ever-changing. And, and as you said, that's been the constant pivot environment for people in hospitality and restaurants. And so, actually, that's a good segue to the other thing I wanted to ask you was, given the pandemic and all of these changes, and when you've looked at reopening, did that change the way you approached it and how you operate and what you offer since reopening? Or did you kind of take the, well, we're going to try to do it like we did as best we can? That's a great question. Um, so with two restaurants in two different locations in the city, um, when we reopened by One American Bisho, which is a very small neighborhood spot, um, we reopened in June and we were, we were terrified. Um, this is before the vaccine was even available last year. And we said, okay, how are we gonna open up safely? 
for the staff to feel comfortable, for us to feel comfortable to operate safely, and also to make the guests feel comfortable. Um, so we decided to reopen with one table per night. Um, and we we changed our format a little bit where we were doing a tasting menu, which we don't normally do in that restaurant. Um, and we wanted to make people feel like they were, they had the entire restaurant to themselves. And it was really special because we had a lot of people that were, some people older, some people celebrating anniversaries or birthdays with loved ones they hadn't seen, um, but they felt safe in an environment because it was just that one table. Um, and it was great. I mean, we had an, an older couple that came in and we asked every guest before their reservation if they had any music um, likes. So we programmed a different station that they liked to listen to. And, you know, this older couple came in, they were about, 70-ish, early 70s, and they said, can you please turn the music up? And they were dancing in the dining room. And it was just a really special moment to see people connect again um, in our restaurant. And that was great. And we were able to, once we felt comfortable and safely, we started to open up to 25%, to 50%, and then to 75%. So, And, and sorry, Nina, this is, this is all you're talking about back in June of 2020? Of 2020, exactly. So with Compelapen being in the warehouse district, uh, our clientele was people that worked in offices, people that were, you know, staying in hotels downtown. So that was pretty much our markets. And we didn't feel like opening up at that time in 2020 was really the right time mm-hmm. un- until things picked up. So when we did reopen, we... We changed the menu a little bit, but we did keep the classics because that's what people wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it's funny how different meal periods picked up because brunch really took off because people just wanted to sit outside in the beautiful spring weather and enjoy, you know, a beautiful cocktail and have a good time. So brunch was a really big thing for us um, when we reopened Compelapen. And when you say the classics, just so we can add some 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 mouth rotting morsels, these are yes. I assume you mean the the dishes that you and Compare Le Pen became known for, not not right. traditional. They're your own classics that you made classic, right? Correct, correct. So I mean things like the curried goat with sweet potato gnocchi is something that is just a warm hug in a bowl. And I, I thought that that dish was so well received and it it just felt like it had to be in the menu. Um and just comfort people. That's lovely. And presumably, I guess, I see what you were doing in terms of a safety and almost like a giving your customers reassurance, but presumably when you only were doing one table a night, that was not a viable way to run the business moving forward. No, it wasn't. Um, but again, this was you know June 2020 where people were still, some, some states were still locked down. Um, some states were reopening and seeing a spike and we were, we really did kind of for ourselves as well, because we wanted to make sure we opened the restaurant safely and not make any mistakes because this is a very deadly virus. And we wanted to make sure we operated safely for the guests and for, for our staff as well. And so bring us forward to maybe let's say pre-Hurricane Ida, August 2021, are both your restaurants fully open and working at 
close to capacity and in similar menu formats and levels of services before? Yes, correct. So, you know, from, I would say, March, like I said, the city got really busy with people coming in, um, more events were happening, people felt comfortable coming out. It was very busy um, and we were able to operate at almost full capacity, which was great. Um, you know, people were very happy. The staff were happy because we're busy and we loved what we do. And we were just energized by the fast pace of service and people and the bustle. Uh, it, it was great. And with the hurricane, are both restaurants closed right now? They are both closed. Um, it, that hurricane was a category four when it hit. And I think a lot of people, because of Katrina, what they went through, they didn't want to be in harm's way. So a lot of a lot of our staff evacuated. And it was actually a very scary moment because everybody was speckled all throughout the, the South. Some people were in Florida, some people were in Alabama, some people in Mississippi, some people in Atlanta. They were all over the place. Um, and I was very thankful that they were able to evacuate uh, safely with their families um, and come back to the city safely. So we ended up closing the Friday before the hurricane hit, which was on Sunday. And most people came back to the city last Wednesday because power was restored. So we spent the last couple of days cleaning the restaurants, getting everything organized, receiving our first orders and building up our inventories again and reopening uh, on this Wednesday. Wow. So even even with the issues in in the, in the Southwest, you're you're you've kind of able to figure out a, a way to reopen the way you maybe not like to, but feasibly. Correct. Um, you know, I think having many of our staff evacuate and be safe. A lot of the houses um, that they came back to were intact, um, which we are very thankful for. And again, safety was a very big concern of ours of making sure that everybody was safe during the storm. Uh, a lot of the, the restaurants that, <clears throat> excuse me, that are reopening are reopening with smaller menus because of the um, scarcity of, of product right now. And I, I did check the weather before we started recording. And uh, is Nicholas is looking like he is not going to batter New Orleans too much? Or what's your feeling? I think we're just going to get the outer bands, um, which which means more rain, a little bit of wind. It, it, it was rainy yesterday and it is rainy today. So hopefully uh, Nicholas can really stay away because... It, it, it's very stressful um, when you're going through storms back to back. And that's what 2020 was for us last summer. We had seven major storms um, cross Louisiana last year, and some were not that bad. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's very scary when you have to go through these things and just the, uh, I guess, the fear of what's what the impact will be after the storm. Um, passes through the state, what is left? Do you know, do you lose power? Do you, do you get flooding? So it, it's a constant stress that you have when you hear there's a, it's hurricane season. No, ab- absolutely. 
it's a lot to the you you can be resilient but being resilient over and over yeah, and over yes. again is 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 definitely trying and challenging agreed I, I wanted to ask you in your description of opening and reopening um you've talked about that to some degree you've been able to go back to at least a strong semblance of what you were before. But I was curious, certainly I've had lots of conversations on this show with people and and not on the show about the pandemic's exposure of the restaurant model being quite broken, um, particularly in terms of, 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 of labor and costs and fairness. And I just wanted to ask you if that's something that in your reopening you and your business partners have been been tackling as well, or it's a can you sort of with the hurricane had to kick down the road? Well, I think one of the things that really came to the forefront was how the model is not, um, what's the word? I would say not the best model for longevity in terms of, you know, I think a lot of people think, you know, owning a restaurant, you're making a ton of money. Um, the margins are razor thin. And one of the things that we had been faced with during the pandemic um, is the cost of food. The cost of food has gone up a lot. Um, so I think a lot of restaurant owners, including myself, you know, you're torn between these things of, do I raise my menu prices? Because that's what it costs me if I have to, if, you know, if goats, take for example, we go through a lot of goats. And before the pandemic, it was nine bucks a pound. And now it's $12.99. And that, it went up $3 in a year, which is a lot. Um, so when you start doing those things, you know, it's, it really comes down to the education of the consumer. Because a lot of people have been bashing the restaurants, uh, saying, oh, you know, just pay your staff more and, and do all these things. In order for us to do that, we have to raise our prices. And I think that's what a lot of people are not aware of, because if I have to charge, uh, you know, $38 for my curried goat, people are like, oh, my God, your restaurant is so expensive. But that's what it costs me if I have to pay for the food, pay for the labor, pay for the china, pay for everything. That's what it costs me. Um, and I think a lot of people are not aware of, you know, they talk about the $15 burger, the breakdown of that. That's what that's what it costs. You know, we're not doing the volume that McDonald's is doing. We don't have the buying power that they have. So if they're buying thousands of pounds of beef, of course, they can get it at a cheaper price because they're buying that much volume. Well, and I doubt they're buying the same quality of beef that you're buying. Co correct. <laughs> so, you it's, know, it's two things. It's volume and, you know, they. I mean, right. McDonald's has to be buying meat from feedlots to be able to keep their price where it correct. is. It's just that simple, right? Correct. So, you know, if you're buying this many, you know, paper straws, if you buy over a thousand pieces, you get a cheaper price because you buy it, whatever it is. Um, so I think a lot of people, that's what it comes down to is the education of what it actually costs to run a restaurant. Um, and for us to live in harmony in terms of charging the right price and also paying our staff right, we have to charge more. That's the bottom line. And uh, what we've done now is we have increased prices to reflect the, the cost of goods that have gone up in the past year. And also we have added a 4% uh, 
kitchen, uh, kitchen appreciation um, surcharge on every check. So every time somebody orders something, that percentage goes to the kitchen. Because the other thing that a lot of people don't understand, legally, by law, a tip cannot go to anybody um, that hasn't handled, has not served that guest directly. So if the cook makes the fried chicken, he can't be part of that tip pool because he hasn't physically served that guest. So, And in that law, I, I, I've covered this topic because I, I find it endlessly fascinating and incredibly important and, you know, have talked to Danny Meyer about what he tried to at least do and, and to some degree failed. Right. It, it, is the law you're talking – because one of the things I think people don't understand is that there's a huge history behind these laws, and they vary by state. So when you're referring Correct. to the law, are you referring to Louisiana or even New Orleans law? Louisiana, that's correct. So if they, it has to be the whoever is serving gets that tip. Um, it's not you can't tip as a, a pool house with back of the house and front of the house. And could you move to a no tipping policy, or would that actually violate Louisiana law too? You know, we we spoke about that last year. I spoke to a lot of restaurateurs in town. Um, Donna Link, who has many restaurants, and I admire him because I think he is one of the smartest people I know and runs a really great restaurant um, group. Mm-hmm. And we, we spoke about, I'm like, Donald, how can we, how can we shift things? How can we move the needle? And he said, in order for that to happen, everybody has to do it. It just can't be one person doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why when Danny Meyer was doing that, I think everybody in the country was just watching to see if this would stick. And I think a lot of us were hoping that people would um, understand what he was trying to do. And I admire that because that's a very, very bold move to do. And I actually went to one of his restaurants when he was doing the no tipping model. And it's again, it's built into the menu prices. But when you get the check at the end of the meal, there's no, how much do I tip? You know, it, there's, it's all thought out for you. And I thought that was a very pleasant experience because there's no, oh, do I, do I over tip? Do I under tip? Do I leave 20%? Do I leave 18%? Like it becomes such an uncomfortable discussion, um, especially if you have a table that you're splitting the check with, you know, it's like how much is Jim going to tip? You know, it's taken out for you. And I really admired that. Um, and I was hoping that it would have stayed, but it's it, it it's it has it's for us to change it has to be the consumer has to change their mindset for this to work if that makes sense it does absolutely it does thank you so after the break we'll be right back with more from new orleans chef nina compton and we're going to talk about diversity in professional kitchens stay with us This episode is brought to you by Sweetgrass Dairy, a second-generation family-owned creamery in Thomasville, Georgia. Their cows are raised barn-free and graze on fresh grass year-round. You can taste the flavor of the bright South Georgia sunshine and grass with each bite of Sweetgrass Dairy cheeses. Enjoy a variety of aged, soft-ripened, and fresh cow's milk cheeses in their unique and delicious gift boxes. 
Gather your favorite people around the table or on a picnic blanket for an assortment of unique cheeses accompanied by preserves, crackers, cured meat, and much more. A Sweetgrass Dairy gift box is the perfect way to celebrate a special occasion or show your gratitude. Visit SweetgrassDairy.com and use the code JULIA15 for 15% off your next order. That's Julia15 for 15% off your next order at sweetgrassdairy.com. Welcome back. We're talking to New Orleans chef Nina Compton about restaurant recovery and improving diversity in professional kitchens. So, Nina, while while we're sticking on heavy subjects, uh, you've I know you've been outspoken um, that women chefs and cooks and rarely get the spotlight, especially people of color. And I, I wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of share your thoughts on what, you know, we can do in general about that and particularly what organizations like our foundation can do to change that or or do a better job of. Well, I think with, you know, diversity and, you know, inclusivity, I think it has been on the forefront since the pandemic has hit. I think a lot of people have had time to stop and think and dig within and really understand, you know, is this the right path we want to keep on going um, towards? And I think with that being said, you know, I think many kitchens that I came up in were mostly males. um, And a lot of women were not in positions of, you know, executive chefs or chef de cuisines or even sous chefs. Um, And it was not a very welcoming environment in most of those kitchens. But I think right now we have more women in those roles, which is breaking the molds. And I think it's kind of an inspiring moment when you look at all these women chefs that are business owners. You look at people like Dominic Crenn. You look at Tracy Jardin. You look at, uh, I mean, the, the, the list can go on. So when you talk about leadership um, in those roles that are held by women, I think we've we've moved a lot um, in a positive direction. I think the change is definitely coming, and I think that started off with the awareness where people just said, "Hey, this is this, something is not right here. Where are the women? Why? Where are the women in the, in these roles?" And I think that we're able to push through. It's not a very easy road, um, especially. You know, I have been cooking for over 20 years and to see where we are right now, I think we're in that changing of the guard. And and I think that started with the awareness of allowing people to grow into those roles, those roles. No, and I think I want to underscore something you said, just just so it's, it's crystal clear. You're not saying that there were not women in kitchens or women who were cooking professionally in various roles. I think one of the things you're underscoring, and I've talked to Chef Tanya Holland about this, is it's very much about those leadership positions, whether it's chef to cuisine, executive chef, or restaurateur. That's one of the key things that's going to make a difference in terms of opportunity and recognition? Or am I putting words in your mouth that you didn't? No, I, I, I think you are exactly right. I think we have become more aware of it. And I think women have actually gained confidence to take on those roles because I think before it was, even if you got that position, you were not really comfortable in your own skin when you had those roles because, you know, there is that 
sense of animosity of, you know, why is she in the kitchen? She can't cook. She can. And, it, you know, you have that, that doubt um, by your peers. But I think women, as we have more women in the kitchen and more women in those roles, I think it becomes we become more confident um, and we're able to inspire more women. And that's why you have things like the Julia Child Foundation. You have um, La Grande um, Foundation. All of those things are about inspiring women and giving them the tools to move forward. I have become a mentor um, to many girls that have come through my kitchen um, and also those mentorship programs. I am actually partnering with the Lee Initiative that we do a week of these young women training in my kitchen and understanding what it's like to run a restaurant. Um, you know, they ask me questions like, what are the hurdles that you have, you know, overcome? Um, what are the tools that you would, you know, give me to um, to inspire me more to become a restaurant owner, to become a, a you know, a executive chef? So I think those are the things that, you know, a lot of us didn't have coming up in the industry. We didn't have a, a woman that we could go to and ask for advice. And now we have those tools for these young women to ask those questions. You know, how hard is it to run a, a restaurant? You know, staffing, how do I do food costs? How do I do marketing? Um, you know, how do I run front of the house? How do I run a pre-shift? A lot of those things were not really given to me. I had to figure it out for myself. So I think now we're in a point where there's so many women in these roles that can provide that information and help these young women really thrive. Well, I think that's fantastic. It's also quite a lot of added responsibility to the already um, tough rest, tough road that there is to to hoe for 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 running a restaurant. So I was curious as a transplant to New Orleans, which is kind of part of your very interesting story, and as a black female chef in, in, in a city who, at least to me, most of its acclaimed, at least publicly or nationally or internationally, recognized chefs have been predominantly white men, maybe with the exception of Leah Chase, and, and frankly, as much appropriate and warranted attention Leah Chase has gotten, it's pretty recent. And so I was curious what your feeling was about your own arrival and, and particularly success and how that's been perceived in, in the New Orleans food community. You know, when I was, I, my first trip, let me backtrack, my first trip to New Orleans, um, I always wanted to come here. And when I did, I came when I was filming Top Chef and I remember coming home and telling my husband, like, oh my gosh, I am in love with this city. There's something so special about it. And since that first trip, it was always on my mind. How do I get to move there? How do I get to, you know, live there? And when I got the phone call to my first restaurant, it was very exciting, but also very intimidating because when I processed the whole thing, I'm like, you know, New Orleans is known for their food. And you had legends um, that lived here and had restaurants here. You had Paul Perdum, you had Emeril Lagasse, you had Frank Brighton, you have Donald Link, you have Susan Spicer. This, I mean, the list goes on, Leah Chase, the list goes on. And these are people that have been in the game for a very long time. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to come in as, you know, very loud. I just wanted to kind of like sneak under the radar um, and hopefully get a little bit of recognition. Um, but that wasn't as planned because when I moved here, people were so excited to have me. They were dropping up cards welcoming me to the city. 
saying we're so excited you're moving here. It was in the newspaper. So there was no like sliding in um, because people love. (laughs) 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 Right. Because people were, the the great thing about the city is that it's, it's very small, but it's very big at the same time, if that makes sense. So when you talk about a new restaurant coming, everybody knows and they're so excited and they want to support and they want to, you know, help this person um, thrive because they love, they love restaurants here. They love eating out. They love dining. They love the food scene. And what I love about the city the most is there's no sense of competition. Um, I think in, in most cities when they say, oh, a new restaurant is open, they're like, oh my gosh, there's more competition. They're going to steal my clientele. But it's the opposite here. They are happy to have new restaurants. They're happy to have, you know, a different cuisine or something that is new, that is fresh. Um, and they welcome that and they support that. So when you talk about our population, we have almost 2,000 restaurants um, in the city alone, not including the small, you know, very, very small hole-in-the-wall restaurants. Um, and that's a lot of, that's a lot of restaurants. So when you talk about the support system, it's because people just love to eat here. Well, that, that, that's really lovely. And I think it is what makes so many people who visit New Orleans fall in love with it. Um, and, you know, despite the tremendously difficult, you know, circumstances that the last decade has brought. So let's talk about food and lighten the mood a little bit. To, yeah. to w- one of our favorite subjects. Um, and I, I'm really fascinated by you as someone who comes from the Caribbean originally and has sought to kind of infuse that coming to a place that's known for Creole food. And I think there's been more sort of authorship and awareness that Creole food it, it, it is not just something that sprung up in New Orleans out of the blue. It's as, you know, Jessica Harris, the historian, has really written a lot about. It's an outgrowth of all of this history of slavery and colonialization and migration and African immigration melding with a lot of European influences. And I'm just curious for for you as someone who has a lot of that history as part of your identity, how they kind of come together or how you see them in New Orleans. Well, I think it, it's, it's such a historical city that has so much depth to it. Um, and when you talk about the influences, it's definitely present in food. Um, and for me, I didn't want to come in and recreate some of those recipes because I felt like those are so sacred that I didn't feel comfortable doing that. I didn't feel comfortable making gumbo. Um, but what I did do is really bridge the gap between the similarities in food that the Caribbean has and also what New Orleans has. And I kind of found that happy marriage between that and not doing those classical um, New Orleans dishes because I didn't want to offend anybody and, and you know, recreate something that I that is not, you know, from my upbringing. But I wanted to bring a fun, fresh approach to Caribbean cuisine and show how similar both of the areas are. And has that been embraced? You get tourists who come to Compare Le Pen and ask where the gumbo is? Right, yeah. Well, you know, like, oh, well, we don't have a uh, charbroiled oysters, or you don't have gumbo, or you don't have a, uh, 
you know, Etouffee or Jambalaya. And I just don't feel like that. that is what Compella Pen is. Um, but I wanted to showcase the bounty of the Gulf, which we have beautiful seafood. And I really wanted to showcase that. And also some of the things, you know, we talk about people love spice here. And when you talk about eating the, the food here, they say the restaurants are good, but when you get a, a meal cooked by somebody in their in their home, it's even better, which is true, because people take a really um, they take it very serious when they're cooking for somebody, and they want to share those moments um, with somebody, and that's what is really beautiful about people here is that whether it's in a restaurant or in your in somebody's home, they really want to cook with all their soul and put that in that plate. Well, and I feel like that's kind of the French influence, the a- absolute, com- complete obsession in a good way and delight about everything from how it's grown, where it comes from, how you eat it, how you cook it and serving it in your home, like that that New Orleans and the surrounding area in, in, in Louisiana really embodies that same thing, which is, I think, really quite unique in all of the United States. I think so. And when, you know, you look at just not just the food, but also the architecture. I think it's a stunning city. Um, and there's some parts where I drive through and I, I, I'm almost breaking my neck looking at from one side to the other side of the street because some of these homes are so beautiful. Um, and it's also that I think what's great is the people here are what really make the city. Um, the energy and the sense of pride in their food and their music as well. Uh, it really shines through it. I think the depth of culture is, is is immense. And that's what people love about when they come to New Orleans. You know, we joke about it like, oh, there's so many characters here. Um, and there really are a lot of characters. Yeah, no. And I think I think especially when you live or travel internationally, you realize how many people have visited New Orleans from all parts of the world and really appreciate it and or, or say it's their favorite place in America or various things like that. I agree. And I, I don't think I've ever met anybody that says, oh, I've been to New Orleans. Oh, it's okay. Every time <laughs> I tell I tell somebody I live there, like, oh my gosh, I've been there. I love it. It's so great. And I had this. And it's, it's just like their face lights up because I think that the people here really touch um, visitors when they come in, you know, that because everybody says, oh, the people here are so nice and, you know, it's beautiful and I had a great time. It, it's just, it makes you feel proud to live here. So on that note, I also wanted to ask you what, hopefully, uh, God willing, with everything that's gone on, the what would you normally and what do you hope to put on the menu for the fall that, that really reflects the, the things that you can source down there, at least normally? Well, I think the the fall is really about, you know, comfort. And I think a lot of people... They know that New Orleans gets very hot during the summertime, but also gets very cold in the winter. So um, one of the dishes I'm actually excited to work on this this fall is a sweet potato with coconut soup um, with, you know, pecans and, you know, fresh herbs. You know, when I think about the fall, I think of like collard greens, you know, black eyed peas. It's really about comfort. Um and, you know, things like stuffed mulatone is a, is a big thing that, you know, a lot of people have for like Thanksgiving and Christmas time. So a lot of those fall squashes really come into play. And I'm really excited because it's not just a pretty time of year with the leaves changing, but it's also a 
great time because the food is just comforting and and soulful. That definitely sounds delicious. So we will look forward to you being able to serve all of that. We're going to take another break and we'll be back with Nina's Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, send us a tweet at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show. We'll be right back. Good food is worth a thousand words. Hi, this is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. Join us as we explore experiences of loss and remembering accompanied by homemade baked ziti and chronicles of comfort and celebration paired with the perfect chocolate cake. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. I grew up literally hanging off the petticoat tales of three generations of Indian matriarchs who used food to speak their everyday language of love. As a result, I've always reached for the human side of recipes and food traditions. As the editor of the essay series, I work with writers to explore the histories behind these passed down dishes, but also what they mean for the present and our futures. I'm so excited to dig deeper into the stories and voices behind them. Subscribe to My Family Recipe from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Cherish dishes and delicious stories coming this fall. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? (laughs) From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Nina, what's your Julia moment? So as you know, Julia, Julia Child inspired so many people with her cooking show. And I guess you remember how beautiful her kitchen was with everything that she brought over from Europe. And it really tells a story of, you know, how well she's traveled and how she just loved to share those moments and how cooking can be intimidating, but also have fun with it. And she wasn't afraid to make a mistake. And I remember actually meeting her very briefly because I went to the current Institute of American Hyde Park and she came to the school. Um, I think they were revealing, um, I think it was a library or something in her honor. And she was there and I remember seeing her I'm like oh my god this is she had this beautiful aura around her and just very sweet and you know she gave her she she spoke to the small group of students that I was in outside and she said just just do what you love and keep doing it and you'll just have fun with it 
And it was just, and then she walked away. And it was almost like she was an angel because it was just like somebody you've seen on TV watching, you know, as you grow up and then you actually see them in person. That was a truly special moment for me. Oh, that's lovely. And so in growing up in St. Lucia, was she on television there? So funny story. So we used to have, uh, I think it was the Travel Channel or something. This was like when I was very young. And the cooking shows they had were Galloping Gourmet, Julia Child. Um, and it was, I think, Great Chefs of the World. Mm. And every weekend, I would be glued. I would not even move. I would just sit there and just watch hours and hours of these shows because, you know, a lot of those shows were, you know, some people cooking in their homes like Julia Child, but then you had Great Chefs of the World that were taking you to all these different chefs um, all over the world. So for me, it was really, I was like a sponge just sucking everything up because, I was learning from the best chefs, you know, in my home. So that was a really special moment for me as a child. Oh, I love thinking about what that would have looked like. I'm sure I probably have a more romantic vision (laughs) in in my head of island breezes and bright sunshine and you glued to this television. But, but, But I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for joining us today, especially when it's been such a tumultuous time in New Orleans. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. For the latest on what Nina's cooking and her reopenings, it's at Nina Compton, at Compare Le Pain, and at Bywater American Bistro on Instagram. You can go to comparelepain.com and bywateramericanbistro.com for the menus and to make a future reservation. Make sure you're following the foundation. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF. And I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>